Hello everybody and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Job. And since we are going to be reading where Job speaks, we start and begin in the book of James, the fifth chapter, beginning in the seventh verse. Hear the word of our Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. And now as we turn to the book of Job, we will be in the 13th chapter. A little bit of context. In the previous chapter, Job begins to answer his friend Zophar the Naamathite. Zophar, being a theologian, wants to confront Job with how things work. Here is how it goes with the righteous. Here is how it goes with the sinful. And since you are receiving a sinner's reward in this life, it is clear that you have sinned. Go to God for mercy. And Job, of course, responds to this with sarcasm. No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. And he tells Zophar, listen, I am God's plaything. He's big. I'm small. He's smart, I'm dumb. I am powerless before the sovereign and almighty God. What am I going to change? But as we start to read in Job 13, he does have an answer for that very same question. Hear the word of our Lord from Job chapters 13 and 14. Behold, my eye has seen all this, my ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies, worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleading of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will he be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Let me have silence and I will speak. And let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words, and let my declaration be in your ears. 
Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Only grant me two things. Then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call, and I will answer. Or let me speak, and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand, his day. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will be sprouting again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud, and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fall from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again, till the heavens are no more, he will not awake, or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag. And you would cover over my iniquity. But the mountain falls and crumbles away. And the rock is removed from its place. The waters near wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. At this time, Job decides, and I think in a righteous way, I can bring my complaint before God. This is the difference between Job and his friends. That Job is willing to go to God in a way that later on the Apostle St. Peter will tell us is a good thing. It doesn't sound humble, but hear me out. St. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5 in the 6th and 7th verse, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Job is willing to do this, whereas his friends are not. 
We can complain and criticize Job all we want. We shouldn't. You will never understand the book of Job if you decide to cast aspersions on the man. If you criticize his words, criticize his message, say, oh, Job got it all wrong. If we decide that we're just like Elihu, or like Eliphaz, or Zophar, or any of his, even his wife. If we are like his friends, or his wife, or the young, and I believe foolish, Elihu, then we have become just like them and we receive the same response from God that God gives to Job's friends. What does our Lord say to Job's friends? In Job chapter 42, verse 7, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Eliphaz and the other two friends, they speak so much wisdom, they speak so much that you can find elsewhere in Holy Scripture, but they speak wrongly, and occasionally they slip in a presupposition that doesn't work. We'll discuss that dynamic as we continue in the study. But what Job says, even though it might scandalize us, God does not say that what Job said was wrong. Instead, God blesses Job. God restores Job. Job does exactly what St. Peter says of casting his anxieties upon the Lord. He does what the author of Hebrews says of coming boldly to the throne of grace. And he makes his case with God. Note that he never says God is wrong. He never says that God is evil. He never blasphemes. But Job is willing to go there such that he complains to God. He says, what are you doing? So he says, in, let's go over here, Job 13 again. He says to Zophar, his friend, my ears heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. He's speaking the truth. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. Have you ever heard of a saint arguing with God in a godly manner, in a righteous manner even? I would say Job, being the first book of the Bible to be written, is the prime example of it. When he argues his case before God, he does so without blaspheming, without charging God with evil. But he does decide to bring it to the Lord. Now, why is this valuable? There is a God that is hidden. There is a God that is revealed. This is the same God. Martin Luther will speak of Deus absconditus and Deus revelatus, hidden God, revealed God. So much of what we don't know about God is actively hidden from us. Isaiah the prophet complains that God is the God who hides. But the revealed God is how God teaches us about himself in Holy Scripture, in the Word. We are to go to the revealed God with our requests. He's the same God. Truly, don't get me wrong, I'm not pushing Gnosticism here. It's the same God. But we approach him with what we know about our Lord. 
Job teaches us, though, that if you are going to really know the Lord, you treat him personally, with reverence, truly, with honor, certainly, without blaspheming, without charging him with evil, absolutely, but you still treat God personally. If Job had merely gotten out his Psalter and read out some of the Psalms, he would not have had a relationship with God. If Job went to all of the pre-written prayers in the world, went to the church fathers and went, hmm, one of them was in trouble at some point, I better read what they prayed and I'll pray that prayer. Job is not having a relationship with God. But when Job says, I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God, Job is approaching God in a personal fashion. He touches the hidden God. He desires to enter into further relationship with real interaction with the real God of Holy Scripture rather than treating him like a theological topic, as Zophar did previously, rather than treating him as some terrifying monster, as uh, Eliphaz does when he talks about having terrifying dreams and visions and saying, you're going to get judged, you're going to get judged. Job says, maybe so, but nonetheless, I'm going to make my case. I am going to be steadfast in my faith and say that if this God is real, I'm going to approach him. So we continue with verse 4. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. For all of his friends, he says, you're not really teaching me anything here. I know what you're talking about. I know theology. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. I'd rather you have the wisdom of silence here. Do you not see what I'm going through? But hear now my argument. Dear friends, you can listen in on the pleading of my lips. For otherwise, I mean, would you speak falsely for God? Are you going to, in your having figured it all out, are you going to try to say that you speak on his behalf, O holy prophets? Heaven forbid. Because after all, he says in verse 10, he will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Job is speaking very accurately. As we read from Job 42, that's exactly what God does. He rebukes Job's friends. So he says in verse 13, be quiet for a second. Let me have silence and I will speak and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? But verse 15, he reassures them. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Not that there is necessarily a conflict here. Perhaps Job at this point is still not aware that God is compassionate. He hasn't seen the point of his undergoings as St. James sees the point of the book of Job. But he is still going to hope in God. He is going to hope against hope that if he can just go to our Lord and bring this before him, cast his anxieties on the Lord, make the case before him, then he will see blessing. 
So he says, this will be my salvation, verse 16, that the godless shall not come before him. He says, I know I'm not one of those guys. I don't have any idols. I don't bow the knee to Baal or Ashtoreth or any of these other gods. He doesn't worship Remphan. He does not worship Ra. He does not go out to India out there to worship Kali, the goddess of time or whatever. No, Job says, I worship the real God. I'm not godless. I know that I can go before him as a believer. And for everybody listening, do you realize that you can do this too? Again, we should all be incredibly careful to not blaspheme as we do it. To not insult our Lord. To not go off the edge. We must be respectful, absolutely. But we can just let God have it in our complaint about our lives. We can tell him how difficult it is. We can be driving and praying at the same time, yelling, looking like a crazy person. But if we do that, we are treating God personally rather than seeing him as a theoretical God. We are seeing that the hidden God and the revealed God are the same God and we are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So he says, I'm not godless. I'm going to go before him. Now he says to our Lord in verse 20, only grant me two things, then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. By withdraw your hand far from me, what he is asking our Lord is, please don't squish me. If I say something impudent, if I step over where I should, if I overstep a boundary by accident and I merit punish, please be merciful to me. Keep your hand of judgment far from me as I speak. And may I not be afraid, let not dread of you terrify me. I believe that God has answered this prayer. Job is given quite a lot of boldness to speak here in the book of Job. He will be very quiet and very reticent to speak when our Lord answers Job. But Job says it and asks it, I want to make my case before you. And I know that the two things that would keep me from doing that is if you kill me before I'm done, and if you make me so afraid I can't get a word out. So please, then call and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me, as truly happens in the book of Job. And finally, he starts to make his case. We'll go a little quickly. We understand some are a little strapped for time. His case starts with this. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Verse 23. Make me know my transgression and my sin. If I've really done something bad, tell me. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? I haven't seen you around, God, but I know that I've been suffering and you have permitted this great amount of evil to occur to me. Why? What gives? What did I do? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? I mean, at this point I'm basically dead. Can I at least hear the answer? You write bitter things against me and you make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. Job never, ever, ever denies having sinned in the past. But that's all in the past. 
Remember, if we look at Job chapter 1, where it says that Job was blameless and upright, a man that sought good and turned away from evil, he feared the Lord, that doesn't mean that he's never sinned. We don't know what his sins were. Maybe he stole a bit of money. Maybe he had a dalliance with a scarlet woman. We don't know. But we do know that he owns up to it. In the sense, at least it seems to me, that these are sins that are in my past that I've repented of. Why would this come back up? God, if this is something for which I've already made sacrifices and atonement for, I've already repented of this, why should this come back in my life? And if it is that, why is it happening? If it's not, if it's some sin I'm not aware of anymore, what's going on? You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Probably a reference to the fact that his body is covered in sores and blisters at the moment. He can't walk very far. I don't know about you. I've tried walking with a bad blister before. It's a terrible experience. I cannot imagine doing that when all of my skin is chafing and bleeding, covered in pus and infections. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, he says in the 28th verse. It's unfortunate that the chapter division happens here when clearly this is the same speech. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Is he talking about all men? Clearly not. There are young men in good health during Job's time. I doubt that this is a discussion on mankind in general, how we all suffer and die. He does say in 14 verse 1, man who is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. Yes. But in verse 3 he says, do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? I spoke about man, but what I mean is me. Do you really, seeing that I am afflicted, do you really bring me into judgment? I'm already immortal. I'm already going to die. Even if none of this happened to me, I'd live a short, happy life and die. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? This can't be for reforming my character, can it? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. Job says, what are my sins? Go ahead, bring him to me. I need to know, if this is really a punishment for it, I got to know. What gives, God? You know that I'm not godless. You know that I love you. You know that I have been faithful. What is going on? And if there isn't really a reason, could you lay off of this? And let me try to get some sort of enjoyment out of the rest of my life. Now here, there are critics that believe that Job was not written by the man Job himself. I disagree wholeheartedly. They will say that Solomon writes somewhat similarly in his poetry. If we go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in the 18th verse, it says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils in the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Well, my goodness, didn't Job just say something similar here in a shorter form? Look away from him and leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. 
But what Job says in one verse, Ecclesiastes starts expounding upon, telling me that the writer of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon or Koheleth, he's thinking about what Job said. What Job says in short form is expounded upon in long form in Ecclesiastes. The idea being that this very much precedes what Solomon's day. In fact, when he talks about mankind's life, when he says uh, his days are determined, his, the number of his months is with you, when he says in the first verse, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble, even the patriarch Jacob says something similar standing before uh, Joseph and Pharaoh saying, uh, your servant has had a life full of days and also full of trouble. Even Jacob is familiar with the sayings of Job. This precedes so much, is such the power of Job that he sits there and makes his case. And instead of the ancient world, the older biblical authors like Solomon or uh, Moses writing, Oh my goodness, how scandalous. How foolish of Job to speak this way. They go, there's wisdom here. St. James says that Job was steadfast in the faith. We should learn from him and how he was steadfast. The first chapter of the book of Job says he was blameless and upright. Who are we to criticize him? I don't know about you, I am not blameless. And I seek to be upright, as any good pietist should, but Lord knows I am not where I want to be. So Job, when he speaks, we should listen. And entire books of the Bible seem to be written in response to what Job writes. That's where Ecclesiastes is at. It's where half of the wisdom of Proverbs seems to come out of. It's where uh, Job gets cited by the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel. And even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob seem to refer back to what happened to him. Maybe what Job said here about a man's days being few and full of trouble caught on as something of a slogan in the family of Abraham since Job was Abraham's contemporary. But now I digress, of course. Let's get back to the text. There is hope for a tree, he says in verse 7, if it be cut down that it will sprout again and its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake, so a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake. This verse and the next verse make it sound like Job denies any possibility of a resurrection. That is not the case. He says, unlike a tree where if you put some water on it, maybe it'll start sprouting again. There's still a little bit of life in it. When you're dead, you're dead. So God, knowing that I'm not going to come back to life until you say so, I can't pull myself back up from my bootstraps. I can't whiff a bit of food in my nose, smell that breakfast sausage cooking and decide, ah, yes, time to come back to life. He's saying, my life is in your hands. But if that's the case, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, 
that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed. Why don't you just kill me? Why don't you put me in a coma or something that you would appoint me a set time and remember me? If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. I know that you can bring me back to life, O God, when the time is right. You can do that. Why don't you put me in the intermediate state now? Why don't you put me in the realm of the dead or something so I can just wait all of this suffering out? Could you do something to take your hand off of me? And here we hear what sounds almost like Job searching for the words. At first he says, go ahead, show me my sins. What did I do wrong? Go ahead, because it seems like you're punishing me for something. I don't know how to respond to this. But then he says, well... I don't know what's going on, but could you leave me alone? Could you let me live out the rest of my life and wring out a little bit more enjoyment out of it, just like a wet rag being squeezed? You have that little bit of water left. But then he switches again and says, wait, no, could you, could you let me just go into a coma? Could you let me go into the soul sleep of death until you're ready to bring me back and I don't have to suffer anymore? Job changes this up, and he brings it all up because he is letting himself cast his anxieties upon the Lord. And he understands, in verse 20, he says, You prevail forever against him, and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They're brought low, and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. He's saying, my life is in your hands. I know that on some level you permitted this all to happen to me, or you actively made it happen. But he doesn't want to get that close to blaspheming, saying that God did something evil. So he says, this comes back to you. I'm going to entrust myself to you. I don't know what I want. Maybe I want you to bring, bring up my sin so I can repent of it. Maybe I want you to leave me alone. Maybe I want you to just kill me and let me wait it out until the resurrection. I don't know, but I know that my life is in your hands. He casts his anxieties upon the Lord, and God will exalt him. Now, again... This is something other scriptural authors will see and comment on. When he says, his sons come to honor and he does not know it, they are brought low and he perceives it not, Solomon writes with a note of despair in his voice. Regarding this, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives, the few days of his vain life with he, when he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun, whether it's good or bad? Is his son going to be a wise man or a fool when he's dead? He doesn't know. But Solomon dwells on something different. Ecclesiastes is a different Bible study series for a different time. Job speaks these words in the context of, God, I'm trusting you. I'm going to let my complaint rip and roar out of my mouth. And I, I pray that you're in your mercy, you don't kill me for it. 
I pray that in your mercy and in your gentleness, you'll allow me to voice my complaint without fear. But I'm in your hands. And I know that you're in control of this. Could you please do something to deliver me? And beloved, if Job, a man blameless before our Lord, can say this, and be steadfast, as St. James says, then maybe that is one of the secrets to being steadfast as well. When we are going through a hard, suffering time, maybe we can follow Job's example and respectfully, honorably, without blaspheming, just let God have it. Next week we will discuss another response from his learned friend Eliphaz, who responds to Job much in the same way many old church ladies would respond to Job's words here, with more fear. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen. <laughs>